Take your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 2. That was fun. Thank you guys for that. That's a great time of musical worship, of thinking of what it is for God to be at work in our lives. Taking what they sang about just then, and then turning our eyes to, to God's Word to see the foundation for, for those songs and the foundation for what it is to come before the Lord and worship. We've been through this uh, series in the book of Colossians that's going to take us through Labor Day. And what we're going to do is, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack the end of Colossians chapter 2. Then we're going to pick up Colossians chapter 4. So you say, what happens to Colossians chapter 3? That is going to take place in your Sunday morning small groups, in your Sunday school classes. So beginning this next Sunday and running for four weeks through the month of August, our Sunday school classes for youth and adults are going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3. If you've been looking for an opportunity to step into a group on Sunday morning, if you've been here for a few weeks or a few months and you're looking for the next place to connect, trying to find out, is God leading me to be a part of this? I know I need to be a part of Bible study. I know I need to be connecting with other believers. This is a perfect opportunity to do that this coming Sunday. We're going to be starting that four-week Sunday school series in Colossians chapter 3, and that study will complement what we're doing on Sunday morning in this time in the worship gathering, looking at Colossians chapter 2. And so as a church family, we're going to be able to start the school year on the same page, saying, God, what do you want to say to our church? What do you want to say to my family, to my heart, through this book, through this portion of, of Scripture? So that's where we're, that's where we're headed. Um, if you're new with us, hopefully you got one of the bulletins as you came in. If you want to turn that over and you like to take notes or you'd like to see some structure for what's happening in the sermon on the back of that bulletin, there are some notes that you can, you can definitely look at. You'll notice that the way we've laid out the scripture this morning is this particular passage falls out in three parts that essentially repeat the same idea but in slightly different ways. So we're going with the shadow, the danger, the substance, and we're going to look at that three times. Just word to the wise, if you're looking to write a new trilogy or, you know, I thought the shadow, the danger, the substance had potential. Like, we could really go places with that. So your next comic book attempt, uh, if somebody wants to write that, and then we can develop into a movie series where the first one's pretty good and the next two stink, uh, we're going to be in business. So that's our trilogy. The shadow, the danger, the substance. That's what we're looking at this morning. Let's start in Colossians chapter 2. Backing up a little bit, I think the verses on the screen start in verse 13. So let's start in Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, so on the basis of what has come before these last couple of Sundays, laying the foundation of the life and the hope and the victory we have in Christ, on the basis of that, 
Verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? Verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's spend a couple of minutes in prayer. Uh, If you'd bow your heads with me. Before we can really get uh, the core of what Paul is saying in these verses, we need to make sure we have that foundation of what it means for Christ to be all in all, for what it means for Christ to be fully God, to have come and completely defeated sin and death, to have overcome all of the powers, all of the shame, all of the fear, all of the guilt that we face. We never know everything that people are bringing into a room like this, but I pray right now that you would submit your heart and your mind to the Lord, that you would choose this day what you will base your life on, where your strength and hope will come from, and that you'll see in a fresh way what it means for that strength and hope to come only from Christ, that we would not give ourselves to anything other than him, because only he is able and only he is worthy. God, prepare our hearts to understand this passage and then to know how you're calling us to respond. That at the end of this passage, as we sing together, as we pray together, Father, that you would draw us to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so trying to set the stage for what's going on in 16 through 23 here. Imagine this situation, uh, and I think it'll help you better understand. So imagine that you're a missionary that has been sent to some sort of of native people. Uh, Don't think of a bad colonial idea, but just think about someone who has good news in Christ, and you've been sent to a group of people where they constantly live in fear of the spirits, they constantly live in fear of the things of the world, they give worship to the creation without any idea of what it is to know the creator, so we're drawn to all these things, and you go in with what we would call the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, that we are separated from God Not because we're supposed to work our ways to him, but because of our rebellion against him. But he has made a way for us to be made new, to be made alive. And that came through Jesus Christ. 
And the people that you go to with this message, they hear grace, and they hear peace, and they hear victory, and they hear hope, and they say, I will turn from my sin, and I will give myself completely to Jesus Christ. And they do that. And God begins to transform their lives, begins to transform their community. But in comes someone who says, you know, that's really good. That's good that you turn to Christ. Oh, but there's so much more that you don't know yet. If you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to find power and hope in life, then you need to stop eating that. And you need to wear this. And you need to do this on this day. And you need to move beyond. Because that's, that's all good that you turn to Christ, but, but there's so much more. There's so much more power. There's so much more to experience. There's so much more to gain. That's good that you have Christ. But you need to do this, not do this, fear this, go to this, and then you'll really find spiritual power, spiritual hope. If you're the person who came in and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, only through Christ are you able to be made right with God and you will find true life, and someone comes in and begins to say, Christ is okay, but there's something more, you have to come back at that, don't you? You have to say, no, 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 don't go beyond Christ. He is superior, he is sufficient, he is all you need. And that's what Paul is doing in Colossians. Everything up to this point, we've tried to lay this foundation about who Christ is and what he means for our life and for the world and for all the cosmos. And now what Paul is going to do is he's going to say, here's what you have to be careful about. Here's the danger you're going to face. In every one of these, we're going to see a danger and then we're going to see the answer of Christ to that danger. Look in verse 16. We're going to start there in verse 16. Paul says, Therefore, on the basis of all of this good news that I've given you about the hope and the life and the victory you have in Christ, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. So what these people were doing is they were being drawn into these things that Paul says are a mere shadow. This idea of a shadow, there's a couple of ways to understand it. And I think there's one that's very preferable over the other. One way to understand this is philosophy 101. Uh, so Plato's famous analogy of the cave this idea that there is a shadow, and then there's what's real. There's the idea, there's the good, but we only see a shadow of that, but we're trying to attain the idea or the real or the good. There's that concept, and this concept was, was something Paul was probably aware of. It was something that was part of ancient thought in many ways, but I don't think that that's what Paul is doing here with the concept of shadow. I think shadow here is more the idea of foreshadowing something. The shadow is the promise that points to a fulfillment to come. So all of these things right here, the food, the drink, the festival, the new moon, the Sabbath day, are reflections of what we would see in the Old Testament. There's certain reflections of Jewish practice and Jewish thought. And they're shadows, meaning they're not bad, but their purpose was to foreshadow, was to promise, was to point forward to something to come, the one who would be the fulfillment, the one who would be the substance, which was Christ. And so they've moved ahead 
to Christ, and now they're being drawn back into these shadows. And this isn't just a matter of you have a smartphone and you go backward to a flip phone. That might be good. This is not the idea that I'm trying to live in the past while everybody else is living in the future. It's, it's not that idea. It's more the idea of you're married and you're acting like you're dating. It's that idea that you have taken a new reality and you've tried to go back to a former time, a former way of life. And Paul says those things, they were a shadow of the one who was to come, which is Christ. And when you have Christ, why would you ever go back to that shadow? Why would you ever go back to that past tradition? But there's a pool here, and the pool comes with this idea that someone would act as your judge. Now, when we think about the idea of judging someone else, we live in a culture where the worst sin imaginable in our culture is that you would judge somebody. I mean, teenagers use this idea of not judging. It seeped into adult culture. The worst thing you could do in 21st century America, it seems, is judge someone. And you think about these verses from Matthew chapter 7 where it says, judge not lest you be judged. Or you think about the passage of scripture in Romans chapter 2 where Paul is addressing the people who are judging others but are failing to look at their own lives. Hear me out on this idea of judging. It is not wrong to make judgments. It's not wrong to be discerning. In fact, scripture many times calls us to do that. What scripture condemns is judging from a prideful perspective, and scripture condemns judging based on something other than Christ. So you live in a culture, I live in a culture, where nobody should judge anybody else. What people mean by that oftentimes is you can't tell me what to do, You're, this is not a, your business, live in your own world, I'll do my thing, you do your thing. Well, scripture doesn't talk about that. Scripture, in fact, says we're supposed to speak into people's lives. We need someone to speak into my life. I need to make judgments about the world around me. Where we go wrong is if we do that in a prideful way that sets, our, sets myself above someone else, or what is being addressed here in Colossians 2 is you're making judgments about someone based on something other than Christ. If we're not careful, if we're not careful We'll judge in favor of someone who's a good citizen, eats what we eat, drinks what we drink, does the things that we consider good, but doesn't want anything to do with Christ. But we'll judge in favor of that person because they seem to fulfill all the ideas that we consider to be good. But we'll judge against the per person who maybe doesn't dress like us, maybe doesn't act like us all the time, doesn't follow our traditions, doesn't follow some of the rules that we laid down, but they've thrown themselves completely on Christ. We'll find ourselves judging against that person because they don't match our idea of values or traditions or things in the past. And Paul is saying, oh, be so careful there. Be so careful that you would judge someone on a basis other than faith in Christ. That is the only foundation for where life is found. Sometimes if we're not careful, we find ourselves in church life, especially those like myself that have grown up in church life, we find ourselves equating Christianity with Victorian values or with mid-20th century ways of living as a Christian. And what we do in that 
process is we risk substituting past traditions for holding on to Christ. And Paul is saying no one should act as your judge on any basis other than Christ. So you're saying, Owen, people can do whatever they want as long as they believe in Christ, just do whatever you want? No, no, that's not the case. That's why we have Colossians chapter 3. That's why you go to Sunday school next week. That's why you see the work that Christ does in our life. I'm not saying someone just does whatever they want. I'm saying that faith in Christ transforms us in a way that goes beyond past traditions. The Pharisee and the prodigal both need Christ. The one who lives a reckless life, who is prone to rebellion, you know who you are, (laughs) who's lived a prodigal life, you throw yourself completely on Christ. The one who is prone to judge, who is prone to gossip, who is prone to always find fault with others, I know who I am, the Pharisee, you throw yourself completely on Christ. The only hope we have is found in Christ. Don't go back. Don't set your sights on the shadows. Don't set your hope on past traditions. Give yourself fully to Christ. He is the substance. He is the one who is able to fully provide life. Okay, so that's the idea. Shadow, there's a danger with that shadow, and then there's a substance that brings true life. Look at the next set of verses. Paul's going to do this, but just in a slightly different way. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. In this situation, the shadow is a little bit different. The shadow here is described as delighting in self-abasement. Translations do a lot of different things with that concept there. A lot of times, it's the same idea of fasting. If if you have your phone or your Bible open and you look down there in uh, verse 23, it'll talk about severe treatment of the body, self-abasement. Some translations will use fasting there. It's this attempt to do something in your body to create a spiritual experience. And then there's a phrase that's really difficult to know what to do with. In in verse 18, it talks about the worship of angels. There's two possibilities, and and frankly, scholars are split down the middle on this, and it's hard to know which one to go with. I'll tell you which one I think is right, but it's hard to know. Worship of angels can either mean the people were literally giving their worship to angelic beings. So, so they were worshiping toward the angels. They were saying, these angels are so great that I'm going to give my worship to the angels. Worship of angels can also mean rising, uh, uh, going to a level of spirituality where you're at the same level as the angels who are worshiping God. So worship of angels can either mean giving worship to angels or it can mean the angels are worshiping and you are rising to that level. In fact, it's probably that second option. What Paul is dealing with here are people who were obsessed with having a spiritual experience where they saw themselves rising to the level of the angels. 
They weren't down here with the lowly people trying to handle jobs and marriage and kids and everyday life and living down here in the church. They had risen to another spiritual level. And part of the way they got there was they beat their body up, they fasted, they did away with certain things so they could rise to a certain experience. You know the danger that comes with that, right, without even looking at your paper? It's pride. My spiritual experience is so much better than yours. In fact, in fact, I've gone beyond the things of Christ. You guys are Christians. You know, you're down here worshiping the things of Christ. I have ascended to a completely different level of spiritual experience. And what do they do in the process? Verse 18 says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. I love this. So hang on for a second. This, is, this works perfect in our part of the world. The phrasing there is about being a referee for somebody else. We know, sorry if you make your living as a referee, um, we know most of us how we feel about officials and, and about referees and that someone else would, would make a judgment about our child or our team on the field and that they would judge against our child or our team. This is the idea that there are people in this church or in this area who they see their job in life as being the referee for the quality of your spiritual experience. Hmm. wonder what that's like to live in a world like that, where someone looks in and says, oh, you lowly person attempting to worship Christ, you have not experienced worship like this, so it's not real worship. And then people change the rules. And they say, oh yeah, yeah, but now real worship looks like this. And you have to be able to attain to that level of worship. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Calvin Ball. Anybody know Calvin and Hobbes? Oh, come on, more people have to read Calvin and Hobbes. There we go, all right. Calvin Ball. So Calvin Ball is a game Calvin and Hobbes play where essentially you can just make up the rules as you go. In fact, that's how Calvin Ball is made up. I know it's hard to read because it's way out and my scan messed up on the right side, but Calvin says, I'm free. I get free passage to wicket five. Hobbes, no, that's what we did last time, remember? Oh, yeah. Okay, the new rule is we have to jump everywhere until someone finds the bonus box. That's good. The only permanent rule in Calvin Ball is that you can't play it the same way twice. And then Hobbes makes up a new score uh, for, for the game. If we're not careful, religion starts to work like this where people are always changing the rules about what true worship looks like. They're always raising the bar saying, oh yeah, if you really worship God, it would look like this, it would feel like this, it would result in this. And what happens is that experience becomes more important than being connected to Christ. I'm not against emotions. I'm not against you having a powerful experience with God. In fact, I hope that is true of our lives. What we are battling against is a spiritual experience that's disconnected from Christ. A spiritual experience where you say, well, if I'm going to be super spiritual, it needs to look like this. Because you know what will happen? A couple of things will happen. One, it's just like people who, who, who chase the next pleasurable experience in life you'll always find yourself chasing the next worshipful experience because that one's not good enough. And so it has to look different. It has to feel different. You're going to chase something else, and you're never going to attain to it. 
And worse yet, you know what you're going to find yourself doing? You're going to find yourself faking a spiritual experience just to feel like someone will judge in your favor that you really are a spiritual person. And so now I have to look like I fit in with the Christians, even though I've lost that connection to Christ. And Paul says your growth is going to happen when you are connected to Christ. It's not going to happen when you're always chasing the next spiritual experience, when you're always trying to do something to your body so that it feels like you know what it is to be spiritual. You don't have to worship with the angels. The angels are the ministering spirits who are allowing you, who are leading you, strengthening you to follow the things of Christ. So what's the shadow? It's a spiritual experience disconnected from Christ. What's the danger? I would grow prideful, and I wouldn't grow spiritually in the process. What's the answer? The answer is to be connected to Christ. He's where your hope, he's where your strength comes from. All right, let's look at the third way this happens. The third way this happens starts in verse 20. Paul says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Pretty much parenting summed up in three phrases. (laughs) Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Just say that over and over and you'll be a great parent. Um, All of these refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. So you think about this idea of having superstitions. Um, You don't have to share your superstitions with other people, but there's a good chance we have superstitions in, in our life. When I played baseball, I would do everything possible not to touch the chalk line on third base or first base line. Like when you're running from the dugout to the field, you jumped, you leaped over the chalk line not to touch that. Why? I don't know. But in my mind, if I touched the chalk on the way to the field, it was going to be a bad inning. I had this this crazy little substance there had spiritual power over me because I felt like if I did X, then Y was going to happen. That's dumb, obviously, but don't miss the way that we can live in fear and live under the power of something that is just part of creation, that's just part of the world. People live in fear of all kinds of things that in reality have no power over our lives. How do we know that? Because Christ has defeated all of those powers. He is the one in victory. He is the one in authority. Something of this world can never have spiritual power over you because of the hope that we have in Christ. And here's why Paul is so angry and fed up at this point. Because he says if you go back to those things, you have re-enslaved yourself to something that you were set free of in Christ. So you have made yourself a slave again to X, Y, and Z when X, Y, and Z were completely defeated through Christ on the cross and through the resurrection. Don't go back there. Don't submit to these rules. What's wrong with the rules? 
Don't we need rules? Yeah, hang on. We're going to get to Colossians 3 in Sunday school. There are, there are things that guide our lives. What's wrong with these rules right here? There are three, th- three things wrong with these rules. Number one, these aren't in your notes. This would be if you wanted to write these down. What's wrong with these rules here? The first is they were destined to perish. Paul says there that these all refer in verse 22 to things destined to perish. They're not going to last. You're giving yourself to something that's never going to last. Matthew 5, Jesus deals with this in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, One of our students who shared uh, a testimony after Falls Creek talked about learning not to give themselves to things that are not going to last. Give yourself to something that is eternal, that really matters. That's what Paul is so frustrated with Why would you set yourself under a rule that's temporary, something that's just of this world? The second thing wrong with the rules is they come from men. God has revealed to us what it looks like to live for him. We want to be obedient to that. You don't need your neighbor to come in and play Calvin ball with you and add another rule that has nothing to do with the things of God. The danger here is that these rules are completely disconnected from the message that Christ taught. They're coming in and adding traditions, adding rules on top of what Christ had already taken care of. The next reason these rules are so bad is they have no value in holiness. Or if you want to use the $100 word, sanctification. They have no value. These rules that were given here, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Do you know what happens When you tell a child, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, oh yeah, they handle, taste, and touch. What happens when you tell an adult, don't handle, taste, or touch? Well, the red button is right there. How do you not touch the red button? Like these rules that are given don't do anything to sanctify us. They don't do anything to drive us to holiness. If anything, they drive us more within ourselves. Okay, watch me. I won't handle, I won't taste. If you're a rule follower, all rules do is they make you feel better about yourself. If you struggle with rules, all rules do here are make you feel worse about yourself. And in every case, you become disconnected from Christ. You've lost the power. You've lost the victory. You've lost the hope that is here. Christ has defeated all of those powers. Look at this, uh, this quote up on the screen. I want us to think about this just for a minute. This quote Wherever authentic, joyful confidence in Christ diminishes, regulations are brought in to preserve what the power of Christ once created. Think about that for a second. Wherever authentic, joyful confidence in Christ diminishes, regulations are brought in to preserve what the power of Christ once created. If you erect enough regulations and build a big enough endowment, an institution can endure for decades after the spiritual dynamic that brought it into existence is gone. God, don't let that be true of our church. Did you know that a church can continue to exist for many years, for many decades, apart from the power of Christ because it's been set up as an institution that continues to go ahead, and what's missing is powerful, joyful, deep confidence in the sufficiency of Christ. And that institution continues to go, but there's no power. The institution continues to go, but there's no life. There's no hope. There's no victory. Don't give yourselves to the shadow. Give yourselves to the substance, to the one who's able to bring power and hope. What's the answer? It's Colossians 1.27. Christ 
in you the hope of glory. How do you overcome all of those things? How do you overcome the guilt and the fear and the shame? Christ in you the hope of glory. Shane Hall, who is pastor at First Southern Baptist Church in Dell City. I know many of you have connections to First Southern and in Dell City, and I just think the world of, of Shane. Shane, a couple of years ago, was diagnosed with stomach cancer and continues to, to this day to fight that battle. And his health is not good right now. But a couple of months ago, he was the final preacher for the Southern Baptist Convention Pastors Conference. And his sermon had a very simple title. It was Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. When you don't know how many days you have left, when you're a young dad, two beautiful kids facing cancer, Jesus is enough. Today is 50 years since Joni Erickson Tata was paralyzed in a diving accident. She's a quadriplegic. Many of you have probably read her books or, or seen the Joni and Friends movies. She wrote a powerful essay today on the 50th anniversary of that diving accident, talking about through that paralysis, through that pain, through all of the questions about, God, why did you let this happen, to come to the other side and say, but Christ is enough. In all of my suffering, in all of my pain, in all of my questions, in all of my doubts, Christ is enough. I'm not going to go back. Why would you go back to past traditions? Why would you pursue a spiritual experience? Why would you let someone else make up a rule for you when you have Christ? When you're in those moments of pain and despair, what good's a past tradition? What good is a spiritual experience? What good is a human rule based on worldly powers when you're in the midst of brokenness and pain? Turn to Christ. He is enough. If you're here this morning and you're trying to work out life on your own, please stop. You're not going to be able to. If you're trying to hold on to the church's traditions and rules, I'm sorry. We're going to let you down. In fact, they shouldn't have been there. If we pointed you to anything other than Christ, we've gone the wrong way. He is our hope. He is our strength. He is our victory. We're going to stand in just a moment, and we're going to sing about that. But if you need to recommit yourself to him, if you need to say, you know what? I've doubted. I've made up questions. I've held myself back. But I need Christ. Now is your opportunity to respond to that. Would you bow your head with me at this time? While we're singing this song in just a moment, while we're singing this song, there's going to be some folks here at the front who would want to pray with you. This may be a time that you just need to sit there and have a moment of prayer yourself. If you are seeking the things of God, but you're trying to do it by chasing a spiritual experience, or you're trying to do it by conforming to human rules, give yourself to Christ. Here's what he's not going to do. He's not going to just let you continue living life the way you want to. There's going to be a transformation, but it's going to be a transformation he does, not one that you do on your own power, your own strength. He is sufficient. He is superior. He brings life and victory and hope. Let's give him praise right now. In Jesus' name.